Hello, and welcome to The Impact Code, your go-to podcast for stories of transformation, inspiration, and impact. I'm your host, Brett Hollenbeck, a seeker and storyteller dedicated to bringing you conversations that illuminate the path to personal growth and collective change. Each episode, we dive deep into the lives of innovators, thinkers, and doers who are breaking boundaries and making their difference in the world. Today's episode is brought to you by Tower Community Bank. As a dedicated partner in progress, Tower Community Bank is not just a financial institution. We are a cornerstone in fostering growth and development within our communities. With a commitment to personal service and supporting local initiatives, we help turn dreams into reality for individuals and businesses alike. If you enjoyed today's show, you can show support by heading over to www.towercommunitybank.com and checking us out. Big thanks to Tower Community Bank for their support in making this episode possible and for their ongoing commitment to community and empowerment. And lastly, before we get into today's episode, let me introduce today's guest, Benjamin Michael. He brings a half a decade of analytical data-driven experience as a deal attorney in big law, a decade of refereeing and managing relationships in high-pressure, high-performance rugby across the USA, plus his background as an artist manager in the electronic music scene. Ben utilizes the various skills he gained through these experiences, along with attending hundreds of concerts, shows, and festivals to share his social supercharging story as a coach for no fun. His journey began in January 2020 with a life-altering experience in Mexico, leading to pursuing passions for music, dance, live experiences, and holistic health. As he discovered the power of experiences, Ben spent the next three years of his life transforming from a self-professed extreme introvert for the first three decades of his life into a social butterfly. He's known for getting feral on the dance floor, seeking out and amplifying immaculate musical experiences, and finding genuine joy in making and fostering authentic connections with people from all walks of life while embracing the beat of the music. His reorientation toward cherishing experiences led to Ben quitting alcohol completely in October 2022 and moving to a new experience-centric city, Nashville, in 2023. While never a quote-unquote problem drinker, Ben found alcohol blurred the memory of the experiences and organic connections he cherishes so much in his supercharged social life. Ben now turns to immaculate music and intentionality to tap into and unleash his own party internally while outwardly expressing the same energy and encouraging those around him to do the same. With Ben on your team, you can unlock the power of creating your own genuinely fun-filled experiences and connections, learn to dance to your own beat, and transform your social life. So sit back, tune in, and get ready to be inspired by today's conversation with Benjamin Michael. Welcome to the Impact Code, where we unpack the stories of extraordinary individuals transforming lives. Today, I'm excited to welcome one of my very good friends, Benjamin Michael, to the show. I met Ben. This would have been several months ago. We were at an EDM show, and we sort of instantly hit it off. He was like, hey, he handed me a little a little duck, which is something that happens quite often at EDM shows. It's like passing of little gifts. And he's like, hey, man, I really like your energy. And from that moment on, every time I saw Ben, it was smiles, high fives, handshakes, bro hugs, whatever, and us always connecting and, and having this mutual respect, I think, for each other's energy and for the sort of way we approached EDM shows, because there's a lot of ways to do that. So I'm really excited to introduce you all to Benjamin Michael today. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brett. Yeah. Glad to be here. Yeah. I'm glad to have you here, man. I think a great place for us to start today 
is diving into where did you first get connected to the EDM scene? Since that's where we met, I'd love to mm-hmm. kind of just start there and then we can broaden the conversation. Yeah, definitely. So I had one of those kind of picture-perfect kind of experiences that kind of got me involved in EDM, electronic music. I went on a just a trip to Mexico with about 10 friends back in actually January 2020. So like right before the pandemic oh, hit. Yeah. And just kind of on a whim, a, a good friend of ours was like, hey, let's all go to Mexico. 10-day trip. About half of that was in Playa del Carmen. Half was in Cancun. And like second day there, our, the person who was kind of like travel agent for all intents and purposes pointed out, hey, there's this like musical thing down in Tulum. Uh, it's like 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. Like all night, yeah. you see the sunrise. Yeah, and like half of us in the group are just like, sure, like why not? Like day two, you know, might yeah. as well. It's like a Sunday, twelve night. hours. Yeah, so we arranged a bus to kind of drive us down there. It's like an hour drive. We show up to this. I think it was called Papaya Playa Project. Is the name of the like it was like a hotel slash venue. Yeah, and yeah, walk into this like you know, just. Festival of light, you know, like you walk into this like different world, uh, you know, with the first off all these vendors and things. And like the crazy thing we all noticed were like tons of people in kimonos. Like there was really there a ton of kimonos and being sold and being worn. So we're walking through, we're seeing people in just very unique outfits, just kind of out there. We hear some like, you know, oons oons in the yeah. background. Yeah. And we come to the beach and there's just like, you know, huge, like it looked like ships and like, like ship, like wrecks and like, you know, old boats, but like with lights everywhere, like oh, lights shooting so out cool. of things, uh, smoke flames, you know, people, uh, doing like, you know, fire dances, things like that. And then further down the beach was like a more of a dance floor and then a stage. And then there was, you know, a DJ performing and things like that. So we just come into this and we're just getting like shot in the face with like a million different stimuli and <laughs> had never experienced that before. And we get down to the dance floor and are just like having the time of our lives. It was, you know, to this day, top five experiences in, in my whole life. And it's amazing. Went there all night. And, you know, one of the moments we were listening, dancing music. And I'd always thought of like EDM as like, you know, just like someone who presses a button and then mm-hmm. you listen. Mm-hmm. And we hear like vocals and we're like, that sounds like someone is singing. And the, the artist is Jan Blomfist. And we look and we kind of like look through the crowd and we see he's got like a mic up to, you know, where he's at. And he's like singing the lyrics to his song as well. So we were just like, what is going on? Like, yeah, mind is, blown. Yeah, we're like, <laughs> like what? this is the coolest thing. Uh, and we had met some other friends we actually knew down there too. Met a bunch of cool people there while we were there, just complete strangers. So it was like a super welcoming community, a super like, so it felt like a very safe, you know, like everyone was there for the music, right? Everyone was there for that kind of shared experience. And then spent that whole night and got to see the sunrise with all of my friends. And it was just something I had never experienced before. And after that, I was, I was hooked. Yeah. And of course, pandemic hit about two months later we got like change things a little bit yeah we got one show in in atlanta like (laughs) after that and then it was just like the world is closing we actually went for another show in atlanta in march and that's when like the weekend we went is when they shut things down and like on the way to the show and we get like the email and it's like show's been canceled because of the pandemic no we don't have this for you know a year plus at that point yeah Yeah. man 
So what about that experience made it so powerful that you said it was a top five experience? What was it about it that made it such a unique and meaningful experience for you? I think part of it was, it was a kind of like up to that point, the fun that I had experienced in my life and what was considered fun, like going out, having a good time was what I call like default party music. You know, Mm -hmm. it was just kind of like the kind of music, you know, top 40, things like that stuff you hear on the radio. And this is the first time I really heard good to me, to my ears, like what I thought was good music that also made me want to like dance to it. Mm -hmm. You know, like I've heard many other songs that I thought are like good catchy songs, Yeah, but they weren't songs that had like made you want to like move your body to, you know? Yeah. And so that I think was the biggest thing. I was like, this is, this is music that I want to dance to. And, I, and like, at the time I was like, I didn't, I was like, what do I do? With my, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do I do with my arms and legs? You know, like figuring <laughs> yeah, it out for sure. But that was the first time I ever had that experience. Where I was like, I want to do that. You know, mm. Where, whereas before I feel like pretty much all other experiences around music were kind of like sway, like sway kind of music, you know, mm-hmm. where you just might kind of listen or like bob your head or, yeah. and that was it. And this was different in that regard. And mm. I also feel like the, community to aspect like the, the the people you know i feel like it's it's tough i think to find sometimes going to just like bars and stuff like that people mm-hmm. going to those places for for the music right and i think when you find especially in electronic music what i like about that is people are generally you know, buying a ticket or whatever it might be to go listen to something that they like we all love like mm-hmm. we're all there for some like artist or act or whatever that we like we love and are there for that kind of shared purpose and i feel like in different communities of music and things like that I, I, that i'd been in before were, that was not as pervasive and yeah. in this community on average it just seemed like a lot more people were there like for the right reasons mm. i felt that too when i went in my own journey when i first started going to edm shows i do remember like i kind of dive dove all the way in like Mm -hmm. you know from similar to you like it was from nothing to like bonnaroo was really like my first quote-unquote rave that i'd ever been to and it's you know tens of thousands of people massive stages and the thing that shocked me was the feeling of community and i remember that how connected i felt to everyone else in that experience and that's not to take away from any other genre of music it was just that my experiences with other genres hadn't felt that sense of community, mm-hmm. something about the lights, the sounds, the mindset of the people that were there to attend those shows um, really brought out this unique feeling of community where it was like, Oh, like I can talk to anyone here and they're like happy to talk to me. They're not yeah. annoyed. Yeah. You know, exactly. It, it's bizarre. So what were you doing at this point in life as far as like career things outside of, you know, our kind of weekend entertainment, what was your life like? Yeah. So I was living in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So it's a, you know, medium sized town uh, between Nashville and Atlanta. So compared to a Nashville, Atlanta, fairly small, but still a large enough, you know, metropolis that, you know, it ha- it has a nightlife. Mm-hmm. Um, but compared to those cities, it's like, you know, pretty, pretty paltry, I'd say. Yeah. So living in Chattanooga, I uh, was working in big law at the time, corporate and real estate. So it was a, transactional lawyer and yeah my my typical you know and this is kind of part of what led to a lot of this but coming back from that experience to chattanooga at the time and looking around at like what can i 
go do for fun now that is somewhere close to what I found on this trip, right? Mm -hmm. And this experience. And, you know, the typical experience was go to the local bars that are generally playing what I call default party music or some variation, Mm -hmm. you know, thereof. And, you know, a lot of times it's just people, you know, getting as drunk as possible. And then you kind of have that, you know, kind of drunk, angry energy Mm -hmm. in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. And I I still think you get, you know, Nashville, Broadway kind of experience. Yeah. And, you know, looking back and now looking at things too, it's like, it makes me wonder like these experiences that are like, that I think a lot of entertainment tries to sell people. It's like, this is fun, right? Like this is what you should do for fun. But with that comes typically tons of drinking. Right. Mm-hmm. And it makes me, it made me wonder and think about now that I look back, you know, is it actually fun to these people or is it, is it fun because we, we get drunk or like, you know, it seems like the, I think for a lot of people, the alcohol mm-hmm. is the thing that brings the fun. Right. I think so. Versus yeah. maybe it's not that fun. So we have to use alcohol to cover it up or kind of hide the like, oh, this isn't that great of an experience. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was most of what we had in Chattanooga. Yeah. And so it, you know, honestly led me to eventually move to a larger city because I was just like coming back from, you know, a big festival or something like that, or even a show in Atlanta or Nashville. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't not have enough of that that joy in my life and yeah. the community mm-hmm. that I found. And again, I found it when I travel I'd mm-hmm. go and I'd meet people, make great friendships, you know, out in California and Denver. And then I'd come back and I'd be like, now I have to wait, you know, a month, yeah. three months yeah. till the next opportunity, yeah. you know, and it's a long time. Yeah. And so I, that was my, my norm. And I came back and it kind of shattered everything. I had really thought about fun and entertainment. Up to that point. Yeah. That's pretty transformative when you start to, when something you thought was true ends up being like, oh, wait a minute. It's like, and it's weird because sometimes in life, I've found this in my own life, at least like, I think I know something and then I experience something different and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Like maybe that's what was missing. And it's like, once that piece fits into place, you can't unsee it. Yep. It's unforgettable. Like, I, I think it's that way. Like, even like in, in love, right? Like if you, you were in a relationship that you weren't quite like, it wasn't the exact right puzzle piece. And then you find one that is like, once you have that, you're like, this is what I was missing. And I think a lot of things in life are like that. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned love. Cause I had a, the same trip also had met someone that had a similar epiphany yeah. with. So it's kind of funny yeah. the analogy. Cause <laughs> it, I met someone on that trip two days later that like, also transform my view on, you know, I'd say love, right? Yeah. So it, it was very transformative in my, what I look to as fun, mm-hmm. but also I think just kind of like relationships and, and romantic um, life yeah. was vastly redefined as a result of that trip, like ultimately. Yeah. So what, what changed on the, on the love front? You know, I met someone down there. Uh, like I said, it was, the, it was a Friday to Monday trip following Monday met this person on Wednesday. It's about halfway through. And yeah, it was just someone that I, I've never at, up to that point, I'd never met someone and then like started dating someone where I guess I would define it as like, we were always so at ease around each other. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. And you know, and what it led to ultimately this person lived in Canada. I lived States. 
did long distance and of course like COVID hit. And so that was also a huge amount of struggles to kind of like, that's tough, man. Doing, you know, having to get all these like loopholes to kind of like her come visit in Tennessee and me come up to Canada and we made it work for about a year and a half. And unfortunately the kind of the pandemic and restrictions and things like that. And I think our own acknowledgement that we weren't ready to move to each other's countries was what kind of ended things. Having said that, that was my first experience finding what I would call love. Yeah. That was the first, like, believe it or not, first woman I've ever said, I love you to. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I never found that till that point. Mm. And even though it didn't work out and it, you know, we bas- basically came to the decision on the same day. Like I called her and she's like, I want to talk. And I, I called her for the same reason. Yeah. And it was like very eerie. And in a lot of ways, it, is eerie. it was the easiest breakup of my life. And at the same time, it was the hardest breakup of my life. Yeah. And I'm super grateful for it. Still, you know, we're still good friends to this day. And I think the transformative part was having found that once, right? Like having found someone that you could see as like a partner for life. And I also think just for myself, like finding that person and also like almost like feeling like giving that sense of like, I'm enough for someone that I would also spend the rest of my life with, you know, right? like having that kind of back like feeling yeah. back to myself was very freeing. Yeah. And so I feel like now in the rest of my life going forward, you know, I'm not looking for an identical person to her, right. but I know I would not want to get into a relationship with someone that wouldn't be similar. Right? Yeah. You know, that wouldn't bring about similar feelings. So yeah, from a like romantic standpoint in my life, I'm not, you know, I'm open to, you know, romantic relationships, but I'm not like, I don't, <laughs> I feel like a lot of times in our lives, we get in this society and religion and all these things tell us like we have to find someone to kind of be whole. And after that relationship, I was finally able to just be comfortable alone and on my own and and realizing that I am enough on my own. And if I find someone who's great like that, I would welcome them into my life, but I'm also not, I don't need that. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have to actively be searching for that all Mm -hmm. the time. That makes sense. So it makes all the sense in the world. And I think the thing that happens is like, as we shift into these in any area of our life, these moments where we we find more congruence with our truest self Mm -hmm. and what we're really looking for, it sets the standard then for how we operate moving forward. Right. Because once you know in love that this is what good is, like you've sensed it, you've embodied it, you felt it, you know what it is. Now, when you're, on a first date with someone or a second date or a third date, exactly. you've got the benchmark to know like, Ooh, this is what a yes feels like in my body. Like yep. this is, and I think it's really easy to ignore like the, the little incongruences in us over time. But then like, once you've found a congruence in any yep. area of life, it's almost impossible to ignore anything that's incongruent yep. because you, you just see it with like such clarity. Yeah. So these experiences, I imagine, have like totally changed how you move forward, even in things like your career. Like what what did did that change anything in your career after that point? Um, or like how did you think about your goals moving forward after you've had these experiences? Yeah, I would say, you know, career wise, you know, I think moving to a larger city was one thing that I did initially you know, because I'd found these experiences, this different kind of fun that I was 
looking for on a more consistent basis. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that drove me initially. And then, you know, having discovered, you know, in a bigger city like Nashville, there, there are so many other ways to like also make a living. I feel like is one thing that yeah. in a smaller town, it can be hard to realize and yeah. to see that there are people who make livings in very diverse, unorthodox ways. And, you know, moving to a new city helped me see that in many ways. I also, um, I attend this, well, like a conscious music festival wellness retreat, uh, out in California, mm-hmm. did the first one a couple of years ago. And that was another kind of moment where I saw and met a bunch of people who, you know, make a living in some way that seems very in alignment with who they are. Yeah. Right. And people that are not necessarily jumping through the hoops that society tells them they should have jumped through to, you know, pay their bills essentially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And seeing some of that, the first time I went was 2022 summer, seeing that as well as moving to a new city really for me was very like eye opening about like, wow, it's, you don't just have to do a, you know, a nine to five at a job you hate to like, yeah. you know, pay your bills. Right. Yeah. Or to like maybe even do well. Right? Yeah. And to kind of have that eye opening thought that I think many people probably in their head know is true, but are probably like, I think we're afraid of, you know, getting out of our comfort zone, mm-hmm. honestly. But to like see a bunch of people who are like living and breathing it and, you know, maybe they're the type of people who's like, they don't need a vacation to like escape from life yeah. for a couple of weeks, right? Like, yeah. because their day to day is they're doing something they love or they're doing something they're really passionate about. Uh, or just something that's a little bit more in alignment, you know, maybe it may not be something they love, but it's not something they hate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in that regard, it really has just shifted my mind. And, and I think, you know, I got to work, um, at one of my law firm jobs with a bunch of entrepreneurs as well, entrepreneurs and VCs. So that was also really eye opening to just kind of work with a lot of people who had really expansive viewpoints about just like the world in general. Mm-hmm. So that also, to me, I think opened up in my own mind, just like an entrepreneurial spirit that I'd always told myself like, oh, you're this analytical lawyer type, serious person, like leave the entrepreneurship to other people, right? Leave that to the, mm-hmm. the creatives and the, mm-hmm. the visionaries and yeah, getting all those experiences I've just mentioned, whether it's you know, trip to Mexico, whether it's California trips, uh, working with entrepreneurs have all, I think, contributed to my own like belief that, you know, I can be an entrepreneur too. I want, like, if I find something that I care about enough to pour my time and money and effort in, then I'm, I'm capable of doing that, you know? Yeah. And I think it's, it's a scary thing too. And I'm like, I've definitely, I'm not figured out entrepreneurship by any means, but just to know that it's something like, this is there for you. If you find something that you care about enough and that you can, you know, find other people that care about it too. You can, I think for me, like helping people is probably like, you know, cause I've gone through these changes, right. I've, you know, I was like a, I'd say a crippling introvert up until probably age 29, like before that trip to Mexico, which is wild for me because right? I, you, I, you never, that? I never would have guessed you're yeah. an introvert. So never. introvert my whole life, told myself I was an introvert. And again, I, cause I told myself social, like, socializing and going out was like kind of like a chore. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think it was partly because the fun that I was doing and experiencing was not fun that I really enjoyed. It was Mm -hmm. fun that other people had to find. It was like my friends or society or, you know, what I learned in college, 
and said, this is fun. Go do this for fun. And oh, it's not that fun. So I'm going to drink until it's fun yeah. or yeah, whatever. And yeah, so that, I, that I think full circle is kind of all that came about. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful story and it's really interesting to me because this has been something that I have transparently always struggled with was the desire to do something entrepreneurial, but I don't, and I don't personally know if it's just lack of self-belief, if if it's lack of seeing someone up close enough, that's done it that Mm -hmm. like, I believe it's possible for me uh, because I think there's like these things, there's these hangups in my mind, Mm -hmm. you know, that's like, yeah, it's right for, it's right for Ben, but not for me, you know? And I don't know, I can't tell you exactly why that happens, but I relate to the the previous version of you where it felt a little bit intangible or impossible or like, but I have that desire too. What would you tell someone who's listening, who has that, you know, and they, they just feel maybe a little bit scared to get started. Yeah. I would say, I think it starts with like being a voracious learner. I think if you're anyone who's interested in entrepreneurship, you know, Trying to like, there's going to be some level, I think, of figuring it out. I think that comes with any level of entrepreneurship. There's going to be a level of, you know, you've got to, you know, for some people, it's like work a ton, right? You may have to work like 20 hour days, or it may be you have to figure out a bunch of really difficult subjects or topics that you have no familiarity with. However, <laughs> there are tons of people out there with podcasts and books, and things like that, that have already gone through that stuff. So, I think like shortcutting as much as you can with knowledge is a huge like first step mm. because just diving in with nothing is possible, but it's probably gonna be a lot more friction to getting to the outcome someone wants. And you mentioned like the hangups, right? Well, I think if the hangups would probably be less and less and less, the more knowledge you would build around what entrepreneurship entails. And one that I've just found super instructive is uh, diary of a CEO, Stephen mm. Bartlett. Um, yeah. Yeah. And now he's like a used to be a CEO of a large like social media agency, essentially. Mm-hmm. Now he's just like a full time you know, podcaster, essentially interviews like yeah. CEOs and similarly yeah. successful people. Yeah. But his first podcast, his first probably 30 to 50 are all him as a CEO and kind of his thoughts and his struggles and his like vulnerability. So you see, this is how he feels. Like, this is like, you know, this is what I think about at the end of a day where I have to manage 800 people in this company. These are the things I worry about. And so now, like, I have that in my mind of like, oh, that's, that's what it's going to take, right? Like, that's just part of it. And I think it's a good thing too for people to like know if that's what they don't want, right? Like, Mm -hmm. because he talks about like the feeling of like having a ton of employees relying on you for a paycheck and things like that. I mean, that some crazy amounts of stress potentially. And I will say, if anyone checks that pocket step, keep watching it because he definitely starts out with the, what I'll call like, somewhat like hustle porn culture, which is like the, like, mm-hmm. if you're not working like 24 hours a day, you're not going to be successful. And he yeah. kind of, you see his development over yeah. time of like, I don't want to say balance, but at least having like making priorities for everything in your life, mm-hmm. whether it's health or family mm-hmm. relationships, because I think he starts off on the, like, you got to work yourself to death to be successful. And he's mm-hmm. like, well, if you never make time for these other things now, you're probably never going to do it. Yeah. And so that is, I think a really, that was a really cool aspect of that, that you could see develop and also also get this amazing insight into a highly successful, highly motivated entrepreneur who also was like learning these things as he went. And so instead of having to figure them out on your own, I thought it was super instructive to be able to be like, all right, here's some guy who 
was at the top of his game and he's still learning all these things and then mm-hmm. teaching you essentially mm-hmm. along the way. Um, so anyone who's interested in entrepreneurship, first 50 or so episodes at least of Diary of a CEO, highly recommend. Yeah. And we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. So if you're interested in checking it out, um, it'll be really easy for you to find. You can just click in. Um, a couple of things that I was thinking while, while we were talking about this, the first is uh, this idea of uh, there's this motivational speaker, his name's Brendan Burchard. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've heard of him, but he's got like, basically it's like an infinity sign mm-hmm. and he calls it the confidence competence loop, yeah. confidence on one side, competence on the other. And the reason is because it's almost like a chicken egg situation, like which comes first. But I think as you develop competence, you're going to be more confident. The more confident you are, the more you feel like you can develop that, that next level of competence. And it's this loop. So I think even like in advice to myself, one thing I would say is like, Hey, start, you have to start, right? Like you're not going to get better at something that you're not doing. And a lot of people Mm -hmm. aren't, maybe they're not afraid to start. They're afraid to start small, right? Mm -hmm. They're afraid of people to see them starting small. Like I'll give you a silly example for me. I started this podcast a year ago. I just started the Instagram. The reason I didn't start it for so long was because I was like, what if people see I have no followers on this, on the Instagram, right? I have a decent audience on the podcast itself, but then on Instagram, I had no one. And so for a long time, I didn't start it because I was just like, what if people see this? And then they don't want to listen to the podcast because I only have 25 followers. It's a perfect example of just being afraid of starting small. But I think that's where we all start, right? Absolutely. It's in the baby steps. And I mean, any, if you've read like Atomic Habits or books like that, that it's the same kind of things, like tiny little consistent things over time, you know, build up and... Even things like luck, which I think uh, Stephen Bartlett has a lot of good stuff on. Mm-hmm. I don't really believe in luck. I think it's if you're just consistently doing things and putting yourselves in the right place and something good happens, I think that's more of what luck is. You know, yeah. I don't think us sitting in our, at our houses, you know, things aren't just going to fall in our laps, right? Exactly. Like good opportunities. You have to put yourself out there, whether it's tiny baby steps, right? Yep. Build into more and more and, you know, over time. Though I do think. You know, one thing with the kind of the self-development, kind of 1% better, which is a kind of the atomic habits mantra. One thing I will push back on that a little bit is, and this is with no fun too, you know, I think that's a good goal. Like I think we should aim to always get better, right? Always Mm -hmm. aim to get 1% better if we can every day. Realizing we may not. Realizing there, you know, life is a roller coaster, right? Like life for no one, not even for the most successful people. Is not a linear, you know, upward trajectory, right? right? And so that is one area we at least like to tell people that we don't think it's realistic to always consistently, you know, be going upward because sometimes things are going to happen. Like bad things will happen in life. Yeah, you'll have a death in the family, some kind of failure in business. You'll have some kind of relationship issue. Like, you know, to because I think unfortunately there's a lot of we'll call it like toxic positivity where it's like, you know good vibes only, like mm-hmm. no negativity, no, you know, and I think that's where a lot of people get in trouble with you know, socializing and partying, right? It's either like, you know, balls to the wall, like you just get, you know, you just get annihilated and it's just this unsustainable life. And that's why people stop going out and stop having social lives. Or it's like, you just stay at home and you don't do yeah. anything. And I think it's, I don't think it's healthy to do either. And I think there has to be a middle ground for people to have, you know, robust social lives and healthy social lives because socializing is a human good, right? Yeah. Like that's, I don't think we can be full and healthy humans if we're not 
social. And I don't just mean social with a spouse and family. I think family is hugely important. Mm-hmm. But if we don't have relationships outside of outside of that, like life is life is gonna be pretty pretty barren, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I agree with everything you just said. And you just mentioned sort of for the first time in our episode this idea of no fun club. And for people listening or watching, that's K-N-O-W. And so my first exposure to No Fun Club was actually uh, watching Ben's story on Instagram and he had shared something about it. And I was like, huh, I wonder what this is. And so I start kind of clicking through the Instagram page, which was brand new at that point, you know, maybe a couple hundred followers. And I was like, this is a cool concept. Um, So I'd love for you to introduce both No Fun Club, what it is, and sort of how did you find your way to this idea? Sure. So kind of how I found my way to it, uh, the exp- the event out in California, music festival on the street, uh, went to that in 2022, met a guy named Evan. Uh, Evan uh, was a... The first I'd ever heard was a, a party coach. And so I met Evan out there and, and Evan is actually you know, 100% sober as well. And met him out there, and he was this just super energetic, vibrant, you know, great energy type person who, you know, I just connected really well with. Uh, you know, we followed each other on social media at the time. And, you know, a couple of years went by, and I uh, just reconnected with him this past, I guess, like August or so. And, you know, he basically told me, you know, he's been doing this party coach thing for uh, quite a while and was kind of looking, for, you know, I guess he had seen some of my stuff on social media too. My last year in Nashville, you know, kind of said, you know, he complimented me as a man. I'm really proud of like kind of where you're at, like where you've, you know, what you've become after, you know, again, crippling introvert to this kind of outgoing extroverted person. And, you know, invited me to kind of team up with him and two other people to start No Fun. And, you know, that we've been doing that now for a few months. We're in, in the middle of a, uh, got a challenge going on right now. We've got, 13 people participating in that. And, you know, in a nutshell, you know, it's about helping people consume less. I mean, consume less, whether that's, you know, alcohol or other substances or social media or technology, mm-hmm. and then creating more of their own fun. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I think so often we go into spaces and we consume what others provide for us, whether it's the entertainment, whether it's alcohol, whether it's, you know, social media, whether it's, notifications on our phone. And what we're trying to do is help people you know, use science-backed tools, tricks, you know, mindset shifts uh, around things like dopamine and growth mindset to basically help them you know, rewire aspects of their life to find what fun is again, or even maybe redefine what fun is, right? For those who, what is fun for them is not really fun and helping to kind of discover what is fun going forward and how they can show up and really be the party themselves. Right. Mm. I mean, you talk about the people who have good energy at shows and things like that. I mean, that's kind of what a lot of ways, what we are trying to help people find, right. Yeah. Like the people who can go and, you know, the music is their drug. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's, that's kind of where I'm at in my life. When yeah. I go to a show, like good music and that's all I need. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you go to a good show and you have good music and it makes you want to move your body. Um, but around that, we have all of these, fortunately, going out, you know, socializing, et cetera, from our early age, right? Think about it. We're at some of our most anxious and insecure, right? In our teen years and early 20s. And that's when we learn, oh, when I'm 
going out, when I'm socializing, when I'm partying, we drink, right? For most people, drinking right. is the big one. You know, some mm-hmm. people do drugs, some people do other things, but we build these habits around socializing, partying, and then we kind of carry those forward. And, you know, even for people like me, I worked a, a job in college admissions for two years. I had to talk to strangers every day. I had people walk in the door. I'd have to go jump in a room with them for an hour, chat with these people, walk them around campus, have huge events with thousands of people. I have to talk to a brick wall, you know, <laughs> for hours on end. And so I went through that job. Obviously, gaining all these skills was a, you know, outgoing person in that regard. Yet still, I kept coming back to like, I go out and I drink. I go out and I drink. And I was like, and that's what ultimately led me to like, personally quit drinking about 14 months ago. And I think that also has kind of led into no fun too. But I, I, you know, I discovered that I was putting this habit with this other habit, which the habit was going out, having a good time. But then I couldn't separate the alcohol from it. But then I was telling myself like, well, I used to drink the alcohol because I was, you know, anxious and not comfortable and, you know, and not, not comfortable with my social skills. Well, now I've got those, but I'm still doing this other thing to do the, you know, to do the socializing, going out and having, having fun. And it was somewhat after that first meeting, Evan out in California, that was June, 2022. And I quit drinking October, 2022. And it was really just kind of a, it, there wasn't like a, nothing happened, you know? And I wasn't like drinking to blackout by that point. I wasn't, you know, I was drinking like a drink per bar kind of thing, like go out with friends. Every bar we went to, if we went to one bar, I'd have one drink for the night. And one day I was just like, I'm just going to try not, you know, I'm going to try going out one weekend and not. And I think it might have been, came to Nashville. I may have, might have been the Rufus Dussault really? show because I came to visit my cousin on that Thursday night. And yeah. I think that was, I, I, I can't even pinpoint the day because it was just such a random, I'm just going to do this this weekend. Yeah. And I did it once and it worked out really well. I was like, oh, I don't, I feel great the next day. I don't have a hangover. And let's just keep this train rolling, you know, mm-hmm. and I haven't looked back. That's so, amazing. What do you think? There's a lot of things I want to dive in here, but I think the first one is what was there a change that was required in you when you stopped drinking? Like, was there a change that was required to sort of meet that demand and enter the space differently? Or do you think the work had already been done and you were just ready? I think, I don't, I think the work had been done a little bit, but I don't think it was done by any, by any means. I think I was just ready to try something different. And I'll be honest, like it got easier over time, but it was not easy to start. And I think like starting off, I'd, you know, get like an energy drink or something or like a, a water with like a, you know, lime or something like soda water lime. So it was definitely a progression too of like of not an immediate change overnight. And even the like the sense of like feeling you have to hold something in your hand, mm-hmm. right? At, I, yeah, I feel bar, that too. Right? Like I that, definitely feel that. Yeah. That took a while. Like that, that took months before I finally felt comfortable not doing that. Yeah. Right. And it's funny, I was at a show at one of our favorite venues like I don't know, five months ago. And there was an acquaintance of a friend of mine. And this person was like almost berating me because I wasn't holding a drink. They were yeah, like, do you literally. want a drink? And I was like, no, I'm good. And I'm, they're like, do you want a water? And I'm like, no, like I'm good. Like I, <laughs> I, I can I, have empty I, hands. I, I don't like, I'm intentionally keeping my hands empty. <laughs> like I don't want my hands to be full. And this person like was like, got it like kind of annoyed me. And I had to like, just tell them like, 
I don't need it. Like, leave me alone. <laughs> I think it goes back to the, the social pressure, right? People yeah. have an expectation of what yes. fun should look like. And if you're, if you're not fitting within that, it makes them uncomfortable because they yeah. feel, I don't know. I don't know if they feel judged or if they feel like maybe they're just concerned for you and they want you to have the yeah. type of fun that they picture is the appropriate type of fun. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly. It could be yeah. different from person to person, but it's a real thing. Like there's yeah. many times when, and people like I'll have nothing in my hands and people will bring me like a water or like yeah. here, man, finish this drink. And I'm like, I'm, I'm having fun. I'm good. Like yeah. I don't need to hold water. Like a, it's, I think it's a comfort thing at first, like where we're holding, sure. holding the water, it, like makes us feel somewhat secure. Like we're kind of participating in the yeah. same way as others, but it definitely, it definitely changes over time. Um, man, there, there's a lot of other stuff I want to touch on. The next one is, can you talk more about party coach specifically? Mm-hmm. What is a party coach? Like, are you a party coach? Yeah. So all of us, the the four of us involved, it's uh, Evan, myself, uh, Amanda and Alyssa. So we are all, we are all party coaches. Okay, cool. So if I'm, do I hire a party coach? Is that, or like hypothetically? Yeah. Hypothetically, some people, you know, hire party coaches, I guess like one-on-one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm a big believer in kind of more of a group. Okay. Coaching and that's what we're doing right now. Which is the webinar challenge. Yeah. And so that's uh, okay. I think there's more value in that personally. And, you know, at a high level, what that encompasses uh, are like, you know, twice weekly coaching calls, about 45 minutes each, uh, daily journal prompts that are then like shared with, uh, shared with everyone else in the group. And then certain podcasts and things like that to kind of fill in some knowledge gaps and spark uh, conversations around things like dopamine and growth mindset and, and things like that. So that's kind of a high level what it is. And I think the most valuable thing in all that is the people, not just people's own journals and seeing what they write and thinking about what they write about these different topics we, we prompt is seeing what other people are saying yeah. and seeing the similarities and saying like, Oh wow, more people, you know, other people than just me think this makes them anxious. Right. Or this, you know, yeah, thing that we all think in our head is like, I'm the only one who feels like this. Right. So I think those are some of the most, where a lot of like the breakthroughs happen is, is that going through that in a group and seeing you're not alone. Yeah. Because think about how many times we try to change things in our lives on our own. Mm-hmm. All right. We say, I want to New Year's resolution, right? We're in January. I want to quit drinking. I want to go to the gym or I want to do this set or the other. And how like the, the statistics are terrible. Like it's like, your resolutions have like awful success rates, right? Yeah. Like people it's like six weeks is the average time. It yeah, lasts, I think or something. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and that's largely because people do it on their own, I think, mm-hmm. you know, and you think of things like how, how, how people change things in the past. Like I always look back for myself, like, you know, when I got initially got in shape physically, I played sports that made me work out. Right. Mm-hmm. like, I had to go to the gym and work out for football and for rugby mm-hmm. and got in really good shape. And that has given me a, foundation for fitness that has continued throughout my life to this day. And if I had just been told, Oh, just go in a gym on your own and figure out, you know, bench pressing or squatting or deadlifting. I very highly doubt I would be in the same place I am today. Yeah. So I'm a big believer. We're a big believer. I know fun in the power of doing things in a group with other people. And, you know, and I think that that takes its own form of courage too, because you have to be vulnerable around yeah. other people, not just to us party coaches. You have to be vulnerable with a bunch of other people who are struggling with difficult things. And we had a call last night and it was, you know, it, it was very like touching to hear people talk about their experiences so far. We've 
just started a week ago mm-hmm. and people are, are, you know, uh, tearing up on, on the call because of the impact it's had on their life already. That's and amazing. to see that it like, that's, that's why I got involved in no fun. I've gone through these experiences. I've gone through these changes. And again, I'm a work in progress. I am not by no means complete. However, if I can do something to help other people find similar, you know, revelations in life, you know, similar shifts in their mindsets that can radically change how they, how they show up in social settings or how they find fun or how, you know, creating like one person, you know, creating a social life from scratch, right? People who may not have any kind of social life. Mm-hmm. And if I can help someone do that, if we can help someone do that, I can't think of anything more personally fulfilling, mm-hmm. honestly. So that's, that's why I'm part of that fun for sure. Yeah. I think there's a really beautiful thing that happens when we take the struggle that we used to have or something that we overcame. And then we hit the point where we have not only like made enough progress on it that we start to feel comfortable in it, but that we can now turn back and say, okay, who else is facing something similar and how can I help them take that next step forward? I think a lot of people picture like, oh, I have to be perfect before I can start doing that. But I think a lot of people don't realize that you may be one step or two steps ahead of someone else. And they're just waiting for someone who can just like, you know, reach out a hand and say like, Hey, have you tried this? Or have you thought of this? Or even just, you're not alone. Yeah. Right. Like I, I'm thinking I was, I was just talking with someone maybe yesterday or the day before. And she's like, Hey, I'm starting 75 hard in February. Mm-hmm. I was like, maybe I'll do it with you. Like I think, and it's not because I don't think she's capable of doing it. It's just because like having someone go through that with yep. you makes all the difference in the world because now you're, yeah you know that like you're not solo in experiencing that you're not isolated in the feelings of the struggle. You have someone who you could be like, man, this morning's workout was really difficult for me. I almost didn't do it, but I did because I knew you were also going to be struggling. You did it too. Accountability buddy. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I love the idea of taking uh, this idea of fun and who we are and experiencing and how we experience fun Pairing it with community and other people who are trying to improve their experience of fun or change their experience of fun. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really powerful thing. So you're, you said two weeks in? Uh, we, a week. A weekend. Yeah. Okay. A but you've already week. had some, some success stories. Yeah. Would you mind to, to just share, obviously keeping confidentiality mm-hmm. for, for your, for your clients, but share a little bit of like what some of those transformations already are starting to look like. Yeah. I think the big one is well, we start off with what's called a dopamine detox okay. to start. So that's kind of what, you know, before we try to add new things, we want to try to see if we can subtract some things or yeah. at least practice subtracting some things for a period of time that we constantly go back to kind of the well of dopamine as we call it. Yeah. And so we ask people to do, you know, between 12 to 28 hours, yeah, 12, 28, 28 hours of a detox from certain things that are typical dopamine it's uh, for a lot of people that maybe alcohol or other substances, maybe social media use, uh, maybe you know junk food, things like that. Um, so we kind of give them some flexibility within that and have them detox from from those things, and then come back you know, to our call last night, and we uh, just got to hear people's experiences, and and it was really cool to hear how many people, you know, pretty much everyone did it, which is a great like almost everyone did it, which is like. Great success Phenomenal. rate, right? Yeah, like I think amazing. One person didn't. So I was like, we we're just like from a like percentage of people who did it. I was like, that's awesome. And then to hear like so many similar things about like uh 
social media, like the buttons, like where the buttons are on your phone and that feeling of like, you do something you're supposed to do. And then you're like dude. automatically pressing, you know, the buttons that happen. Yeah. Man, you're, you're, you're just like instinctively, you're like straight to the Facebook button, straight to the Instagram button. Yes, right. Yes. Even if you like delete, like a lot of people deleted it at yeah. the weekend as you're still searching and there's it. still like just that default thing. And I found, cause you know, we go alongside them in this. I found, I, I went to a show Saturday night. I came back and I was like, doing my kind of like wind down, like having some water before I went to sleep. And I found myself like, because I gave up for mine, it was like Twitter and like most social media. I found myself, I was like sitting there, I'm like about to go to Twitter. And I'm like, why am I going to Twitter at like <laughs> three in the morning? You know, when I'm like trying to go to sleep, I have to like get up and do, you know, stuff the next day. And I was like, but it, it made made me and, and many other people realize like, wow, we have all these habits that like are largely dopamine driven that we just kind of like run on autopilot. And unfortunately, like, especially with tel- cell phones and social media, like that's what they're designed to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like the smartest minds of our generation have mm-hmm. designed these things to make us consumers of them, right? To make yeah. us like their things, watch their things, bring in ad revenue, whatever it may be. And yeah, so I think that those were some of the like revelations that were cool to see that like all these people are struggling with these, these same things. And, uh, and then they're having those aha moments together, right? Like you know, even in our chat, people are like, oh, wow, I had that same thing. and you know, I, I even shared there's a, an app called OneSec, which is a blocking, it blocks certain apps for you. Mm-hmm. And I shared that beforehand and that I use it even in my normal life for certain apps. And it, it's really cool. It, you can set the type of like intervention it does, but mine is like it fills up a screen. It's like, take, take a deep breath. And then it comes back down and then it shows you like, you access this app this many times in the last 24 hours. The last time you, you accessed it was like 10 minutes ago. So it gives you like wow. this info and then it's like, do you still want to go in this app? Like you still mm-hmm. want to enter Instagram, right? And then even further, it asks you like, what is your reason? If you want to, what is your like your intention? And so there's wow. like, you can do like, one of mine is like work. So if I'm, sometimes it, it is actually work, uh, but other times it's like bored, right? Or procrastination or like toilet, right? You know, you're just like yeah. Yeah. list of things. You can add your own custom ones. And having something like that is also just like, the data you see, you're like, wow, I accessed this app 17 times today. Yeah. Like, that is crazy. That is yeah. wild. But until you have some kind of idea of that, you have no idea, right? It's yeah. all just kind of autopilot. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But that, those are some of the insights we had. And it was really cool to see. So exciting. And really, I think the same type of transformation you experienced, you're now able to like gift to other people. Yeah. And a lot of it is just the aware- awareness and the embodiment of the actual feeling. Which is, which is so cool. I want to dive just a little bit deeper into this idea. Like, why is creation versus consumerism important? What actually shifts in us, and why is that so important at No Fun? Yeah. So I think, I think what we see is consumption is kind of the default, right? Whether it's consuming, you know, alcohol, whether it's consuming social media or phones, uh, and. I think if we're always stuck consuming things, we're always kind of being driven by external factors, essentially, kind of the outside world. And we are strong believers in, you know, if you can, if you can't be the source of your own fun, you're going to find it somewhere else. Right. And so what we're trying to get people to find is find that fun within themselves, like Mm -hmm. unleash that party inside themselves. And again, we have all these things we built around it, whether it's, alcohol, whether it's all these dopamine hits from social media, whether all these things that we built that make it that that cloud and make it difficult 
just to, to look inside and see like, what, do, what is actually fun for me? What is actually being present in the moment, enjoying what I'm doing? What does that look like? And so that's why we think the consumption is a negative thing because we're just constantly, constantly, constantly consuming, consuming, consuming. Mm-hmm. And until we get out of that mindset, I think we're always going to be beholden to outside forces. And until we, you know, and I'm a big believer just in general that people that create tend to have more full and healthy lives. Right? Yeah. I think creation is part of being human. Right. Yeah. And unfortunately, and I, I, I went through still at times struggle with this, but so much of my life where like, it was just kind of like consumption autopilot, right? Like yeah. work all day, go to the gym, come home, turn on Netflix. Right. Until that time. Like I, I remember when I worked at big law, that was like mm-hmm. pretty much my default for a large portion of my professional working life at yeah. a big law firm. And part of that was, I was just totally burnt out from the work day and my mm-hmm. mind was fried. And mm-hmm. you know, I didn't have the, the mental energy to like, Oh, I read some books, listen to some podcasts, yeah. do some other things. But yeah, it's, I think creation in general is a noble and worthy pursuit. Mm. And so if you can do that with fun, if you can create your own fun, then you can bring that out. I think the best thing is then you can ultimately share that with others, Mm. I think is what, you know, where we want to get people to. So then you can have your own fun, create your own fun. And then other people can feed off that too. So then you can help other people have fun without consuming all these, these alcohol and other things. Yeah social media phones, et cetera. So I think that's kind of like the end point too, is we want people to create their own fun and then hopefully bring that out in the world and create fun with others. I think that'd be a lot better world. Yeah. I think the more people we can do that, the better the world is. So if someone's listening and they're like, man, this sounds awesome. Do they have to be in Nashville? First of all, uh, no, we are a, uh, like we're a digital first, uh, okay. you know, company right now. So actually I'm in Nashville. Another person's in Detroit. Another one's in Miami. Another one's in Chicago. And then a couple of uh, party coaches used to live in like LA as okay. well. So right now we're a digital first company. Uh, the whole program is, is done online. It's actually done. The challenge is done largely at your own pace, except for the calls. And we actually we record those too. So if people miss, you know, they don't, they don't miss out on that experience completely. So it's a completely fully digital, which I understand there is probably some, uh, it does seem probably like a paradox too, of like, you know, we were trying to help people, uh, you know, show up better in person. And again, part of the challenge and what we believe is, you know, you learn these things about yourself and then you go actually go out and implement them mm-hmm. too. So that is part of, you know, further down the road, a couple of weeks down the road is here's some tools, here's some mindset shifts, here's some education around dopamine, also growth mindset, which is, you know, the idea that we're not static, we're able to become better at things. We're not, right. you know, not, you're not bad at accounting. You're just bad at accounting now. Like yeah. You can yeah. go read a book on accounting and become yeah. better at it. Yeah. Uh, so then we, we try to teach these things at the beginning, try to get away from some of the uh, nostalgia of what fun used to be. And then we say, here, here's some tools and then go out in the world and try them out. Right. And also involve other people, all your friends and family and see how that makes you feel. Right. Yeah. Cause I think, you can you can you can sit there and tell people to do something, but until they do it, and until they do it, and also come back and say, "How did that make you feel?" Like, how you know, did it? Because mm-hmm. I, again, I don't think even our challenge, like five week challenge, I don't think that's going to be a an overnight or an over month or change. I don't think you're going to be a completely new person. 
with that. I think it's something, and even with myself, you know, from 2020 to now was not an overnight change. You know, going to that trip in Mexico, I didn't come back and I wasn't completely changed. Right. I was still a pretty introverted person after that trip. And even when I went to out to California where I met Evan the first time, I wasn't changed overnight from that trip. But it was putting myself continually in those difficult situations. I would say those uncomfortable situations over and over and over. First in you know, Chattanooga, right? And then going to do things around the country, places I've never been before, moving to a new city, you know, going to shows where when I moved here in February, I went to shows where I didn't know anybody. Yeah. Right. Like I went to shows, thankfully my cousin lives here in town. So he went to a few yeah. shows with yeah. me, but there'd be times he had to work or something. And I went to shows by myself and thankfully ended up meeting, you know, people like you just, you know, out of the dance floor, listening to good music. And, yeah. but again, that was a process and that was not easy to start with. And right. so I do want to be clear to people like this is not meant to be a, something comfortable necessarily. And I do think it gets much easier as you implement things like this in your life, it gets much easier as you do it. But, you know, we're big believers at no fun that, you know, easy decisions will lead to a small life. Hard decisions will lead to a big life. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you continue to put yourself in discomfort, that is the place, that is the place where growth comes from. Yeah. I, I strongly believe that whether it's in your social life, it's in your career, whether it's in fitness, what whatever aspect of your life, I think that's true. Yeah. And so we don't, we definitely want to, whenever we tell people about no fun, we want to be clear, like this is not going to be easy necessarily, but in the end, is it going to be worth it? I think a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that goes for most change in our lives. And so if people want to jump in on a challenge, how do they do that? Yeah. So we'll probably be having these running every five or six weeks. Okay. Um, and so our current challenge, like I said, started a week ago. We're actually still accepting people up through this Wednesday, just because okay. we do have those pre-recorded calls that we, again, those are disseminated only within the group, right? Those are not shared outside of the group. And those are just for the people who are not, not able to make certain calls. So um, we do have people, a couple spots left for this challenge up through this Wednesday. Uh, but otherwise, you know, reach out to us on sh- social media and let us know you're interested. And we're happy to, you know, let you know about when the next challenge will start and kind of what other things we have going on too. And the goal too, I think down the road is, you know, we have this as a digital only initiative, but we do want to get to a point where we have stuff in person because I think that's where the magic happens, right? Yeah. So having like alumni of no fun come together, you know, in a city or something like that for a few days and, um, you know, seeing where we're at, at that point and going to do those things, go out to those places, have that fun that, people have now defined for themselves yeah. and letting them, you know, show the party that they've become. So that's, that, that's the future. That's the vision. So we're not there quite yet, but I think it's, you know, the logical conclusion, you know, with what we're about because yeah. we, we work as a digital first company now, but we're all about the community and the connection and we want to help foster that as much as we can. Yeah. And if you're listening and you've got that, that feeling of like, huh, curiosity, I'd highly encourage you to follow No Fun Club there. They will be in the show notes. I'll have the Instagram in there so you can look them up, check out their page, see what they have to offer. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised with the content there. It's it's still growing, uh, grows every time I look at the page, there's more followers. Yep. Uh, so it's definitely on the rise. I think it'd be a cool thing to be a part of early on as well. Uh, so, so definitely check out No Fun. Ben, what's next for you personally? 
Oh, that's a good question. Just like in my personal. Just yeah. Life. Yeah. Like what, you know, you, you've got no fun going on. You're, you know, still going to shows quite often. Like, is there anything on the horizon that you're excited about that we haven't talked about today that would be interesting? Hmm. Maybe, maybe uh, a rugby tournament you guys yeah. are about to crush. Uh, I'm actually going to Fort Lauderdale end of January. So it's right outside of Miami. And there's a camp that the like top 40 referees in the country get to go down there. And I think it's coinciding with there's a professional league called the MLR. So we'll get to work with some of their referees as well uh, and kind of like go alongside them with these workshops, things like that. There's a fitness test, the Bronco, which I'm, that's one thing I'm not looking forward to. <laughs> I need to go run one actually soon and yeah. see where I'm at. Yeah. That is definitely one area that I'm looking forward to, to doing something a little outside of my you know, party norm, but I, I've been a rugby referee for 10 years. I played rugby for six refereed for the 10 after that. And again, that's another area that like, it's brought me such good community mm-hmm. on top of, like, and I didn't realize this till one of the coaches told me like six months ago, a ref coach, we were at a breakfast after a tournament, we we're about to leave to the airport. We're talking about like, you know, yoga, meditation, things like that, and how these things are good for us. And, and he brings up, he's like, yeah, like just like refereeing. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, think about it. Like you go on a pitch and in rugby, there's a single center referee, just like soccer. Mm-hmm. Right. And then there'll be like one person on either sideline with a flag. So that's like a, assistant ref but there's only one person on the field only one person who can like blow the whistle who basically is like in charge of the game and it's true he's like when you step on that field you don't think about anything else Mm -hmm. right you don't you're not thinking about what do i have to do for my job the next day you're not thinking about you know what issue am i going through in my social relationships right now you're not thinking about anything else except this game and these players and maybe that coach on the sideline who might be yelling things here. I'm pretty good about like hearing only things on the field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm losing my hearing. Who knows? <laughs> uh, but that, that'll like to be told like, Oh wow, that is meditative in, in and of itself. I'd never realized it. And mm. you know, an 80 minute game, well, that's 80 minutes of just like focus, right. Mm. On, on a single topic. And of course with rugby refereeing, there's like, thousands of decisions and not decisions we make every game. So it's definitely not a calming experience in like right. a typical meditate meditative uh, experience, but it is, it truly is like a singularly focused thing that you're, you know, for me, at least with my like philosophy around refereeing is I want to create a framework that the players can work within, which will create safe rugby and positive rugby. Right. right? So you don't want to have teams that are, doing ex, you know, excessive penalties maybe because they're not as good of a team as the other team. So penalize, 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 because that's the only way to stop the dominant team. So you want to create a, a framework and, and things we do to stop that, right? We'll penalize initially. And then if they continue to do it, we may have to warn them. We may have to move to like a yellow card, which the yellow card in rugby is like, uh, like hockey, you're 10 minutes off the field. Mm-hmm. So you lose a player. Mm-hmm. So it is actually pretty impactful. And especially if you lose a player in your scrum, which is the, Think of the packs of people that push mm-hmm. against each other. Mm-hmm. You lose one of those. Now your scum's down for 10 minutes. That can lead to more penalties, things like that. So again, creating that framework that they can work within and setting those standards early in the game. So the players know this is what a penalty is to me. This is what's not a penalty. So then when we get to the last 20 minutes of the game, they know what, what the standards are. And then they are the ones who decide the game, not yeah. me. So then they know this is a penalty. If you do this in the... 80, 80th minute of the game when the game is on the line and there's 
you know, mm-hmm. one point difference. And I've been doing that for the last 79 minutes and I've set that standard for you and you know what it is. Then, you know, the players decide what happens and I'm not having to insert myself and be like, Oh, I'm going to make a decision that changes the outcome of this game. The players get to make that decision. And I think, I think that's just a good way to approach refereeing. Um, because you know, people often get mad at refs for changing games because they make one call. Right. Yeah. And so to yeah. the extent you can put it in the player's hands and be like, Hey, here's what I expect. Here's how things are going to operate. If you disagree, that's just how I, you know, I'll take your, criti- I'll take your constructive feedback, but this is how things are going to work. Mm-hmm. And then you guys can figure out how things result from there. And if I do a good job, you know, one of the kind of unwritten rules of thumb is that the well-referred game will be a high scoring game because mm-hmm. it'll create space for the teams. You won't have a bunch of negative play, a bunch of penalties. Uh, if you do that, there'll be space, there'll be opportunities. And if that happens with good teams, with athletes who are well coached, there's going to be scoring. So I always, you know, unofficially look at the score of my games to kind of determine like, was that a good game or not? Yeah. You know, on top of all the crazy video self-review we have to do as part of that national yeah. group. So there's yeah. a, there's a whole lot to it. And another thing I really enjoy about it is, you know, there's the balls and strike aspect, which there's a lot of nuance in rugby. There's a lot of gray, there's a lot of like, this is a penalty, but it's not affecting anything. So maybe I'll say something to this player at the next stoppage. So there's a lot of materiality. We have a lot of discretion in that regard. Mm. On top of that, on top of the, what happens, there's this whole psychological game, right? There's 30 players, one of me. So it's a little bit like, jokingly, I, I say, you know, it's a little bit like Pavlov's dogs and you're kind of like, you know, like negative reinforcement, like penalty and then like positive, like, thank you for rolling away. And like, you're, you're kind of training the players as well to work within that framework that we as referees want to see. Uh, but it's also like you work. One thing I love about rugby, only the captain is supposed to talk to you. Like they actually, mm-hmm. that's a strict, like if someone who's not the captain for the team speaks to you, especially like in a, like a negative way, it's very looked down upon. Mm-hmm. So, but we do have to keep that communication with captains going because we have to use them. If there is like an over too many penalties issue, I have to talk to the captain and communicate that in a way that is credible and builds rapport. Right. And I also have to do everything else in a way that builds rapport and is credibility. Right. If I'm making a bunch of decisions that don't make sense. Right. And then I go to him and say, Hey, I need you to work on this. And he's like, well, you've been inconsistent on these last like six calls. And what I say to him at this next point is not going to matter. And then I'm not going to be able to get that buy-in to potentially change behavior to build that framework that we're looking for. So there's this whole like psychological over or underpinning to the whole thing of like, we have to, you know, try to change the behavior, also build relationships. Uh, also realize, you know, sometimes you're going to get captains that are like, Super chill, super cool, great to work with. Sometimes you're gonna get people that don't even want to like look you in the eye. Yeah. You know, and you have to learn to deal with these different people. And occasionally you get a player who doesn't know that they're not supposed to talk to the captain, but they know and they just do it anyways. Yeah. And so then you have to deal with, you know, how do you resolve those conflicts, right? Mm-hmm. In a way that still keeps that overarching framework that you're trying to create, you know, in place, right? You don't want this one destructive player because that's what happens, right? You one destructive player can cause this little issue, little issue, little issue. And, you know, next thing you know, there's a fight and it's like, well, that fight started because mm. you didn't fix this thing down here 20 minutes ago. It looked yeah. this thing 15 minutes ago and 10 minutes ago. And then it just boiled, boiled, boiled. And then it, the pot flipped over finally, you know? So there's, there's, there's all, so many layers to it, which I love, mm-hmm. you know, like when I started doing it, like, I'll just stay involved. This is a great sport. Yeah. I love the community. Mm-hmm. And 
then I discovered this whole like, you know, world of refereeing that was just so nuanced and so deep that, you know, I, and on top of that, I have to do fitness tests. So it's like good motivation to stay in shape, yeah. too. you know, yeah. um, but the other thing I love about rugby is the community, like similar to yeah. electronic music is there are very few sports where you can beat the living hell out of each other for 80 minutes. And then it's customary for the home team to host the away team at like a local bar or, or just out on the field. They'll, you know, depending on the level, you know, uh, food and maybe beer and they'll sing, get, they'll sing songs. They'll sometimes give awards to the other team. They'll pick like their man of the match, right? Like the team that the home team will pick the away team's man of the match and vice versa. And they'll kind of have a little chat about that, a little announcement. And I think that's just so rare to see in sport. It is. You do not see, like you think about like, I think, and again, I played football, I played soccer, you know, I get done with those games. The last thing I wanted to do was go talk <laughs> and be around. And it is just normal in rugby. You yeah. just go like, you. and me as referee, that's the other thing. I as referee, I am welcome at that. I can go and sit there and hang out and eat some pizza. And, and I use it too for feedback, right? Mm-hmm. I go and I'm like, front row of the scrum is the most notorious for being like, called the dark arts because it's just like, don't know what they're really doing up there. Yeah. And so I will go find the props and the hooker or the two of the positions and I will go find them and be like, all right, so what was really happening? Like, what did I miss? Mm-hmm. Like, tell me. And you know, and I get really good feedback and they'll be like, Oh, like this guy was like dipping his shoulder, whatever. And I was like, Oh, I have no idea. Like, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's not only informative for me to become a better referee, but it's also just a great way to stay involved with and yeah. kind of foster that camaraderie that and, and welcomeness that again I see a lot of similarities between electronic music and rugby and at the same time I see a lot of the at times excesses too right rugby mm-hmm. is a huge party culture I've been at like some really fun but also excessive rugby mm-hmm. celebrations and mm-hmm. so it's interesting to see you know these really welcoming come as you are communities that also too have these struggles with certain things, yeah. right? These similar, you know, substances and things like that, that just come along with it and are almost like maybe tradition to a degree, especially in rugby. Yeah. You know, you have, you, you, when you, when you score your first like tries, like a touchdown in rugby, you're supposed to uh, drink out of like a cleat filled up with beer, <laughs> and you shoot the boot and you drink the beer. And then at some tournaments that are more social, do a Zulu run and you like run around the field naked. So it's like, <laughs> there's some pretty like raunchy rituals that have been built. And then some of the songs too get pretty raunchy too. So it's it, rugby's kind of like, I, I love it to death. Don't get me wrong, but it's, it's interesting to see too, like the, the ways that even partying is involved mm-hmm. and that and how mm-hmm. it, it replicated. Like, for example, I did a game at Ohio state is traveling Irish team, one of the best teams in Ireland, college team, is traveling the US, playing all the best teams, beat Ohio State like 94 to 3. Like I was just like, why am I even on the field almost? You know, like, I was just yeah. like, they're just getting stomped. And I went to the social after, and these Irish kids were just chugging beer. I mean, just downing it. And I was just like blown away. There's in the parking lot, in the outside of the bar, just getting annihilated, you know? <laughs> and I'm sure some of them actually enjoyed it. Yeah. But I'm sure some of them were probably just like doing it because that's what everyone else was mm-hmm. doing. That was the mm-hmm. expectation, right? And it goes back to like, you know, we build these habits around things we love, right? Build habits around, they all love playing rugby. They're really good at playing rugby. But with that comes these traditions and these rituals and these habits. 
that have been built up either in our own lives or over the history of the community. And so it's one of those things I, I see and I'm always like somewhat tormented about too. Yeah. Because you know? I love yeah. rugby so much. And I also don't want rugby to suffer as a result of those excesses too. Yeah. I feel that, man. I hope the, I hope the trip to Florida goes really well. Um, and, and honestly, you never know, maybe no fun expands into rugby culture at some point too, man. I'm, I'm excited to see the work that you all are doing and to continue hearing the success stories. I know y'all are going to continue doing amazing things. So I appreciate the time today. I know it's been valuable for me and I'm sure everyone listening as well. So man, thanks for coming on the yeah. show. Thank you, Brett. Of course. Is there anything else you want to share while we got you on here? I don't think so. It was a good uh, cover letter thing, I think. Yeah. Good, man. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll definitely, I think, wrap, you know, let's give it five, six months. We'll come back. We'll do this again. We can yeah. talk more about where No Fun Club is then and, and how it's continuing to grow. Exciting. Good stuff. All right. We'll Thanks, take care, man. man. Yeah. Talk soon. And that concludes my conversation with Benjamin Michael. His journey from extreme introversion to now helping others be socially supercharged is inspiring. I'd like to extend my heartfelt thanks to Ben for joining me and sharing his transformative experiences and insights. I also want to thank Tower Community Bank once again for continuing to support the Impact Code and the work we do here. Their dedication to community development aligns perfectly with our mission to inspire and empower our listeners. So big thanks to Tower Community Bank. If you enjoyed today's episode, head over to www.towercommunitybank.com and check us out. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in. Your engagement and support are what make this podcast a success. Don't forget to subscribe for more inspiring stories and conversations and share today's episode with a friend. And if Benjamin's journey has sparked your interest, be sure to check out No Fun Club through the link in the show notes. For now, this is Brett Hollenbeck signing off from the Impact Code. Stay inspired, stay curious, and keep making your impact. Bye.